Welcome to the weekend edition of The Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts, discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. That's why Huggies is the number one best-fitting diaper with its curved and stretchy fit and 12-hour protection against leaks. No matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your baby's mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Get your baby butt in the best-fitting diaper. Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. As you know, Robert Greene is not just one of my writing heroes and one of my mentors, but a guiding and shaping force in my life. And yet, for as long as I've known Robert and as much as an influence that he's had in my life, I I don't I actually haven't spent that much time with him. Uh, early on in our relationship, my job was to drop off a stack of papers or a book at his house or to talk to him on the phone for 30 minutes while he gave me instructions. And of course, we've had dinner and lunches and stuff before, but but he spends a lot of time doing what he does. And I, I've always felt weird imposing on that or interrupting it. And so today's episode is a result of of actually, I think, the most time that I've ever spent with Robert Greene, and uh, certainly the most time my family has spent with Robert Greene. Robert Greene came out at the end of December to see uh, me and uh, my kids and my wife. He stayed at my house here in Texas. And uh, one of the reasons he came out is he was signing a bunch of copies of his books uh, so we could sell them at the Painted Porch bookstore, which you can check out at thepaintedporch.com. And then he also came out, we were recording a podcast with a couple of different mutual friends, uh, which you might've seen on my social media. And then he and I wanted to record an episode 
of the podcast. So I got to sit down and interview Robert Greene, which I've had the privilege of doing, I think three times in the last year. And so, I don't know, it was just, a, it was a wonderful trip. Uh, I got to have meals with Robert, got to uh, socialize with Robert. He got, I got to give him a tour of the farm. He got to meet my donkeys. And uh, we got to just talk a bunch. And, and uh, he bought some wonderful dinosaurs for my boys uh, and uh, some wonderful gluten-free bread that he brought with him. And it was just, a, it was, a, I don't know, I really, really had an amazing time. And I felt so grateful to be graced with his presence and then I felt uh, extra guilty uh, on the way home because he had a hellish return trip, not just because traveling during COVID is stressful, but then there was a delayed flight and a delayed flight and a delayed flight. And what should have been a three hour flight took him 12 or so hours. Um, so just know that this interview uh, came uh, at an immense uh, cost and sacrifice uh, from Robert Greene. And uh, I hope you appreciate, appreciate it accordingly. If you don't know who Robert is, I don't know what to tell you. He is, I think, one of the greatest living nonfiction writers, not just of our time, but of all time. His books on power, strategy, and seduction and war have sold millions upon millions of copies all over the world. The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, The 50th Law of Mastery, The Laws of Human Nature, and now The Daily Laws, which I was lucky enough to work on him with, all of which we have signed at thepaintedporch.com. You can follow Robert Green on Instagram, Robert Green, uh, at Robert Green Official. You can follow him on Twitter, at Robert Green. You can follow him on TikTok. He's been doing awesome TikTok stuff, and we filmed a bunch of that while he was here, at Robert Green. And of course, robertgreen.co. Um, here's my interview with Robert Green. I don't need to tell you what it's about, because you should just listen to it, because anytime you get an hour to listen to Robert Green, you should take that chance which is what I did. Thanks to Robert for visiting. Uh, check out his many, many books. And uh, check out my past interviews with him as well and enjoy this one. Talk to you soon. So I thought we'd start with your, I think it's your favorite quote from the Stoics. It's the one you, you've said to me the most. Um, maybe you can- There's repeat. two, but I think I think you know- This is This is the boxing one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what is that quote, and what does it mean to you? Well, you're gonna—I'm gonna butcher it to hell. It's—you know—it's better if you tell it to me. I know it, this I is the one the about the boxers in the ring, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think Marcus is saying you're like a boxer in the ring, and when someone—he uh, says when someone gouges you with your their nails or butts you with their head, you have to—you can't just run away crying or even accuse them of being a cheater. You have to adjust your fighting. Right. Uh, style accordingly. And you have, he says, you can be wary of them, but like you can't get out of the ring. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a metaphor for life. And um, so the idea is that when you enter the world as an adult, the work world, it is like an arena, it is like a boxing match. Some people play by different set of rules. I forget what the normal boxing rules are called. The, uh, you know, if that guy, his name, no, oh, it doesn't matter. There's sort of a standard for sure. behavior in a boxing ring. Some people abide by it. Some people don't. They hit below the belt. They hug you. They do all kinds of things that are not you're not supposed to do. Um, and, you know, this is like human nature. So Schopenhauer has this quote that if you're walking down the street and you hit your foot against a rock, you don't go get angry at the rock, right? Well, sure. people are rocks in your way sometimes. Right. 
They're just, I don't mean that to, to, to depersonalize them. I mean, in the sense that they are who they are. They have their own nature and that nature isn't yours. And it's going to clash with you sometimes. And that is just what it means to be a human being, an adult in, in the world today, in any world. So are you going to be like complaining and blaming the fact that it is a boxing ring? Are you going to complain that people have a nature where they have an ego, where they're full of envy, where they're passive aggressive? And then in the, in, the source, in, the, in the process of complaining, you're putting yourself at a continual disadvantage because you're draining yourself with all these useless emotions and you're not playing proper defense against them because you're all consumed with kind of personalizing the situation. Or are you going to have some distance and be like a boxer in a ring and be smart and intelligent about it, you know? And I just think it's a brilliant metaphor for life. It's a brilliant metaphor for being in control and for accepting the fact that some people play a little bit dirty. Some people are going to hit you. It's going to hurt. But you don't whine and complain. You just figure out how are you going to defend yourself better. I thought it was like a perfect metaphor for the 48 Laws. He does seem to really like boxing metaphors. There's one passage he says, like, um, some people say life is, is a dance. Mm-hmm. And he says, actually, it's more like wrestling yeah, because right. you have to be dug in and ready for sudden attacks. Right, right. Do you agree? Is, is life a, a boxing match or a wrestling match? Like, is it, is, you know, because you say this in your books all the time, you go, as in war, so in life. Right. Do you, is that the, the, the lens that you look at the world through? Well, to some degree, I mean, um, conflict is kind of inherent in the human condition. So your path through life is never going to be easy. There's always going to be resistance. There's always going to be people who oppose you. I, I got, when I wrote the war book, I also, the other metaphor was the samurai warrior. That was a major theme in it. And Musashi talks about the stance of the warrior. Yeah. And it's the stance that matters. It's how you meet the adversary, how you position yourself, how you're calm, how you position the sword, and how you're ready for the attack. The attack might not come, or the opponent might just give up and walk away, or there may be somebody who come from behind, but you're ready, you're prepared, you're in the proper stance. So I always think of it kind of in those terms. Are you prepared? So I don't want people to be paranoid. I don't want them to go around thinking everybody's evil and they're about to attack me. I want you to be in life to have this kind of composure, this stance like a warrior. You're prepared for the worst. You're not expecting the worst, but you're prepared for it if it happens. And if some kind of crap comes your way, you know how to fight and you know how to defend yourself and you know how to get out of bad situations. And I say that because I myself, before I wrote the book, I violated a lot of times. The stance that I was in was all wobbly. I was too emotional. I wasn't strong. I wasn't like in a firm position, et cetera. So I was thinking my, my other favorite Marcus sort of wrestling boxing one is he says um, it's, and maybe, maybe Musashi would, would get mad at this, but he says it's better to be a boxer than a fencer or a swordsman because the boxer's weapon is a part of them and the swordsman has to pick up their weapon. And I always took that, I, when I read that passage the first time, I thought of the final law of the law of power about formlessness, uh-huh. becoming one with whatever it is that you do and not yeah. needing any external things. You are fused with 
the defenses or the 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 tools that is a part of what you do? Well, um, you know, Musashi would counter Marcus Aurelius. It would be a great discussion. I wish we could bring them back together. I know, it would be incredible. Um, but Musashi would counter it in that the great samurai warrior becomes one with his weapon. Yeah. It is simply an extension of his arm. And he had a famous sword fight. He had many very classic famous sword fights where um, he didn't have a sword. And he would just used like he, a stick. Or he a, used like a, 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 an oar. Yeah. Right, and he defeated his opponent. So it didn't matter that it was necessarily this hard piece of steel. It was how he used it. And he thought of it as an extension of his arm. So, you know, it, it was literally not not like a prosthesis. It was no, literally right. a part of him. I'm writing about Musashi a little bit in the Temperance book. Oh, good, he's amazing. And uh, there's a story that I didn't get to use, but I, I, I loved it so much. He was, he was in this fight and... Uh, he, you know, he would always do these sort of destabilizing, like yeah. he would always win the fight before he got there. Yeah. He'd be late or, yeah, you know, yeah, he'd yeah. be weird or, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. he'd yeah. dress strangely. Yeah. But in this one, um, he, he shows up and uh, he's late or something. The guy's really angry. And the guy takes out his sword and he throws his scabbard into the ocean. And uh, Musashi says, ah, so you know you're going to lose uh -huh. because a winner would not have thrown their scabbard away. Uh -huh. yeah. And I just, uh, and you could tell, like that would have just confused and broken the spirit of the per. I love like his sort of quips and his ability to sort of think through what the other person is expecting, what they want, and he'll do anything, even potentially a dishonorable thing or a thing that would be viewed as dishonorable, yeah. to destabilize that person. Mm -hmm. So even though they might have been equally matched or he might have been outmatched. Musashi would win. He was the Bill Belichick of samurai warrior fighting. Whatever your strength is, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna uh, undermine it. Yeah. So the other thing about Musashi that's brilliant, that's very applicable to life, was he treated each opponent as different. He never repeated the same strategy twice. He surmised the opponent either before the fight or during the fight to see what their psychology was see what their weaknesses were, what their strengths were, so he could neutralize their strength. And he never repeated the same strategy twice. He always looked at the, his opponent as an individual. I have to adapt to their style. I have to mirror them sometimes. So he had this one quote about, if I yawn and I feel tired, I will induce that in my opponent because emotions sure. are contagious. Sure, sure, sure. Although I'm not really yawning and feeling it, I'm gonna make this person tired by my apparent lackadaisical attitude. So I found that brilliant, you know, because so many people in life, they're bad strategists. Most people are awful strategists because they're locked in the past and they're constantly repeating what worked a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. They don't look at the individuals they're dealing with their employees and say, this person has a particular psychology, this one's very different. I have to approach each person differently. They take the path of least resistance and they do this kind of cookie cutter approach where I'm just going to apply the same strategies to each person. And Musashi was the complete opposite of that. I almost, I was thinking about doing a chapter about that towards the end of the, the temperance book, because people tend to think stoicism is having no emotions. But what I thought was so genius about Musashi, and uh, I'll give you another example of this, but like, he's not only not, not emotional, or he's so transcended his emotions that he's able to use emotion effectively, right? And like, I think about this, like when a basketball coach will get a technical on purpose 
or like, how does one, if, if you think it's about stripping emotion out of things, maybe that is part of it, but that's like beginner level. That's like, that's like basic. But the real thing is to be able to understand emotions, process them, and then use them, or at the very least, understand other people's emotions and be able to manipulate the wrong word, but, but, but use those emotions to help them or you accomplish what is supposed to be accomplished. Yeah. I mean, the, the proper idea to me is sort of a lot of what I meditate about and is in, in Buddhism where you're not trying to repress your emotions because first of all, you can't, we are emotional animals. And if ever you have tried to repress your emotions, particularly in a state of meditation, you see you have n zero control over them, right? They're popping up. You know, it's the way we're wired. Um, so the proper stance is I'm not going to repress emotions, but I'm going to understand them. I'm going to see them as they occur with a degree of distance. I'm going to see that I'm angry in this moment. I'm going to almost like have a, I like to imagine it as if I'm, like six, six inches away from myself. I don't know why that metaphor come up. but I'm Only looking, six inches? That doesn't seem that far. Well, I'm, it's out this side. It's like here. However, okay. that's like a more like a foot, I okay. guess. Right? And I'm looking at what I'm thinking or feeling from that distance, almost from the outside. And I'm still feeling it, but I'm seeing it as if it's from, um, as if I'm another person. I know this is a strange concept. Yeah. But you can observe your own emotions while you're feeling them. And then you, they don't have power over you. Then you can say, okay, I'm angry. Why am I angry? So number one, I recognize the emotion. Number two, why am I angry? Is it stemmed from something weeks ago, months ago, or earlier today? And then what do I do with my anger? Sometimes you want to use your anger. You want to channel your anger. So when you're in sports, if you don't have that kind of drive and that anger, when you're in a bet, you know, when you're down by 12 points. It's like an extra gear. Yeah. You can pull. Yeah. There's a little bit of anger and, and even, I don't know, um, hatred or something. You, you just despise the enemy. You're going to crush them, right? You use that emotion. But as Phil Jackson said, if that emotion controls you throughout 48 minutes of a game, you're useless. You drain yourself. Right. You can't control it. You also make mistakes. You make mistakes. So you need to be focused, but you also need to be able to use those emotions. That's where I use that metaphor of the rider and the horse, which I've repeated many, many times. Maybe that's another medallion that we could, yeah, could manufacture. No, no, that's a great idea. <laughs> the um, the 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 other Belichick thing I was thinking is, you know, that's what everyone goes. Bill Belichick takes your best asset and he he brings it to zero. He basically, if you're throwing team, he figures out how to stop the throw. If you're running team, he stops the run. But I think he also doesn't get enough credit. Like, did you watch the the Patriots uh, Buffalo game? I think it was last week. Painful, but I did. He he also is aware of whatever his weakest thing is, and he makes that a non entity in the game. What was that in this case? Well, it, so they were playing in Buffalo in like the strongest wind. Yes, snowing. And and he uh, they threw the ball three times. That's right. And it was the most boring, it was, like it was painful unsexy to watch. game. But they they gutted it out. I'm, yeah. But like, it it it. T I was amazed at this both the self control, but then you also have to have a certain amount of confidence and not giving a shit what other people think. Because like, think about how many people he made unhappy by only throwing the ball three times. Quarterbacks mad. 
the offensive coordinator is mad. The yeah. quarterback's coach is mad. Yeah. The announcer is mad. The fans are mad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's like, I don't care. Like he, right. he will win in the ugliest possible way. Yeah, yeah. And he almost likes winning that way more, I think. Yeah. And he also adapts, as we were talking about, adapts the strategy. So right. he's, he's very good at like figuring out the opposing quarterback and what their weaknesses are, the weather conditions, the conditions of the field, the psychology of the moment. He's very aware of all of the details, which is what made Napoleon such a great field general. Because Napoleon, people don't understand, he was not only brilliant at coming up with a plan, but he was brilliant in the moment, adapting his strategies to what the opponent showed him because he created what's called maneuver warfare, which is probably similar to what a Belichick does. And maneuver warfare isn't about the position you occupy. It's about the options that you have. Right. So you put yourself in a position where you can go in five different directions, five different arrows. And if the moment comes, you can go here, 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 depending on what shows up, right? As opposed to the typical Prussian general who, I'm going to go this way and attack, you know. Sheer gonna, force and strength. Or even I'm going to make a, 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 a flanking attack this way and they only have one gear and they only go one way. So... And Belichick, he's always kind of adapting his strategy to each game instead of like running the ball completely. Sometimes when Brady was the quarterback, he would throw 54 times, et cetera. Yeah, yeah he's amazing. Yeah, and they were, so he, 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 the way he chose uh, to, like after they won the coin toss or whatever, he chose it so they would I know, they'd be, be playing, it, uh, they'd be playing with the wind at the, he's like, I don't care how bad we are for the first three quarters. What matters is, is the wind at our backs right. when we need to make the final play? Right, in the exactly, game. exactly. I love. I, it was. It was. That's like one of my second. I think obviously the Rams Super Bowl is another great example. Of oh, like, that was so painful. But that was. But, ima- but imagine how hard it would be to play a painful game in front of literally the entire world. Like yeah. you know, everyone's watching. Everyone's mad at you, and you just don't care. Well, he's also a bit like the character I wrote about in the 48 Laws of Power, Chuko Liang. And Chuko Liang was in, in the Chinese, uh, I forget what the, the War of Three Romances, whatever it's called, um, was such a brilliant general. He was the one who sat on top of the gates playing a guitar and yes. humming. And, and he had no army. Yeah. And the opponent comes up with like, you know, 20,000 men and they see him on the gates all tranquil in, in monk's robes. He's like singing. This guy's up to some trick because he never, he's always has tricks up his bag. Right. We're going to turn around and leave. And he only had like 40 people defending <laughs> this castle. Yeah. It was his reputation. And it's almost like people are defeated by Bill Belichick before they get in the stadium yes. because they're anticipating. He's, Vader. he's playing with your yeah. mind before you even get there. And no, I know that's true. what happened to Jared Goff when he was the quarterback of the Rams. We chose to do something that we've never done here before at Daily Stoke. For one week only, you can sign up and immediately begin the 2022 New Year, New You Challenge at your own pace. We recorded, edited, timestamped my live Q&As. That's three hours of me answering questions on a wide variety of topics, including how I applied stoicism to my own life, my goals, my practices. We talk about what to do when you're overwhelmed, when you've taken on too much, ways to rethink your habits, routines when life gets too chaotic, and 
so much more. You get the benefit of all the other people who've been through the challenge and what they've learned and shared as well. And additionally, the New Year New You Challenge participants get 21 custom challenges delivered daily that will help you stop procrastinating, gain clarity on the life you want to live, learn new skills. Again, this is just for a week. If you procrastinated earlier in the year, if you told yourself you were going to get around to it and you missed it, well, you got a second chance. You've been given a do-over, a reprieve. You can sign up at dailystoic.com slash challenge. And as always, if you're a Daily Stoic Life member, that's dailystoiclife.com, you get this challenge and all the challenges that we have planned for the year for free. So check that out dailystoiclife.com, and of course, dailystoic.com slash challenge. Another uh, Marcus quote that I think ties in really well with your books. Uh, he says, you can't go around expecting Plato's Republic. And what I love about the Stoics, although Seneca is sort of an edge case in that, you know, he's not totally admirable, but like the Stoics weren't these sort of uh, theoretical uh, philosophers, but they had to be philosophers in the emperor's court or in the real world, in the army, in business, in the Roman empire. Just what does it mean to you when, when you hear like, you can't go around expecting Plato's Republic? Uh, you know, Seneca, first of all, um, you know, they're trying to like, um, that maybe Nero wasn't so bad. He did kill his mom. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, but for the time, that was pretty normal. He only tried to murder his mom several times and was successful. All but right. but, his but mom maybe was his pretty, reputation is His not mom was pretty evil, too. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, some okay. people are arguing that maybe Nero wasn't as bad as, as okay, they thought. Okay, but you know, rehabilitate Seneca's reputation here a little yeah. bit, because I feel bad for him. But um, yeah, I mean, Machiavelli has that quote, so that if you expect everybody to be good in this world, you're in, you're in a lot of trouble. You know, what are you going to do when you deal with people who aren't good? But yeah, you have to be willing to get your hands dirty. So let's say a classic example, like you're, there's a cause that's very important to you, like the climate or, you know, justice in America, you know, racial justice in America, all very important issues that we all, most of us believe in. You know, if you you have to be willing to get down and dirty here because you're playing with politics, you're playing with people who are going to resist, you're playing with major corporations who are going to bust your balls, who are going to be incredibly manipulative and downright evil in co-opting your good idea and and kind of, you know, neutralizing it. So if you're going to be, if you want to create something, if you want to actually um, have results, you have to be willing to get a little dirty and you have to get be willing to be strategic you have to understand that the other side might not be playing by the same rules that you're playing with. You know, a lot of warfare is with asymmetry, not just of weapons, but of also of ethics. You know, like the Democrats and the Republicans, I know those people are going to rant about that, or when we play, we're going against Vladimir Putin. These are people who have more options than we do because they're ethically not bound by the same norms there, that we have. There's self-imposed limitation. The self-imposed limitations are a one-way street. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and I talk in my books about two people, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King, and how at certain moments where they were so invested in the results of getting the English out of India, of bringing racial justice to America, that they were willing to do things that were actually a bit kind of manipulative, downright manipulative. 
So that's where it's, you know. But that's another point too. It's not just that it was manipulative, like in that they would, they, you know, Martin Luther King deciding like, hey, we're going to use children in some of these uh, mm-hmm. uh, marches because even though we know they're likely going to be in danger because it will help. But I think it's also the key there to me is going just because your cause is right. And this ties in directly to the laws of power about uh, never appeal to mercy, always appeal to self-interest. Like just because your cause is correct or right or just, you can't just expect everyone else to be on board with that. So it's not they were they also understood they had to convince people, they had to get them to see something. Yeah. So they 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 understood that it just wasn't theirs because they they were on the right side of history. Right. And and so he made an exchange where he was putting these children's in danger because it was bull connor whoever was the the sheriff at the time he was you had the dog, the whips out and everything but he knew that it was going to play on television yeah. in white people's homes in chicago who had kind of they didn't have an image of america being like this they never saw the dogs being taken out in the whips and the water cannons and he was going to put it on your television set right yeah he could he was going to make them understand the lies they were telling themselves about segregation. And Gandhi's strategy was exactly the same. They didn't have television back then, but in his salt march, he literally was inviting his followers to be beaten up, clubbed by the the English um, police or whoever it was. And that would be in the newspapers. And English people who were very liberal and thought their country was, you know, the the great hope of the world, we were reading in this paper about defenseless people being clubbed and it would turn them against the empire. Right. Right. So yeah, that's exactly what your point is. Yeah. It's like, uh, might doesn't make right. And right. Doesn't make might. You have to figure out how to sell whatever it is that you're selling and understanding that. Yeah. Most people are indifferent as best, or they have some vested interest in not caring about what you're talking about. I think about that even as a writer, it's like, no, not that many people like books, you know, like you're, you're, it's an uphill battle to get people to read a book. And so you can't just expect that because you care a lot about it, everyone else will care. Right. Well, it's hard. It's not natural for us to get outside of ourselves. Our natural position, which is sort of what I talked about in human nature, about our narcissism that we all have, is I have a great idea. Everybody must think it's a great idea. Right. I, I think the world is this way and should be this way. Everybody should be feeling that way, you know? It's just natural. Sure. But it's, it's takes, it takes effort to get outside of yourself and to imagine that people come from different cultural backgrounds. They didn't, weren't raised like you. They're a different gender. They're a different race. They have different backgrounds and different belief systems. And to try to think about that and to also think about the universal qualities that all people share, you know? And so the problem, if you, could, if you could boil down the problem with humans into one line, it's the fact that they're always taking the path of least resistance. They don't want to put effort. And, the, and it requires effort to strategize, to think of your opponent, to think of what makes them different. It takes strategy to think about what will persuade them, what will get people to join your cause. You know, it takes effort to get outside of yourself to see how other people might view it. But we don't want to do that. We want to just be lazy and just assume that everyone's on our side. Yeah, or we, we just want it because 
because it is better for the world, of course the world should do it. Yeah. And that's people do the wrong thing or act in not their self-interest all the time. Yeah. My I love this quote and I read it at the beginning of the pandemic and it's been helpful to me. I think it kind of connects to what you're talking about in the Sublime book. Mark's Rios in Meditations, he says he learns from one of his mentors that the key to happiness is to be free of passion, but full of love. What does that mean to you? I'm not quite sure. I, I don't know if I, uh, can you help me a little bit and then I'll, to, I'll riff? I, I was taking it as meaning like, you're not angry, you're not jealous, you're not frustrated. Like the passions, the sort of negative emotions as the Stokes. So love about. isn't a passion. But that love is some sort of deeper emotion, some better way to go through the world. Um, that of all the passions, that was the one that was okay. Love. Okay, so love is a passion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's something that, you know, I, I, I believe very much so. And it is, it is kind of touching upon the sublime. But um, all the other passions are very inward m moving, right? Mm -hmm. They're about you. Yeah. They're about your anger. They're about your frustration. Yes, you could be angry because some people are doing some really fucked up things to you at some point, right? So it's not completely you. But the emotion is geared towards how you feel and you want to get retribution if someone's hurt you, you want revenge, you know? So it's all very kind of self-centered. But love is the one emotion that you, forces you outside of yourself. True love, because there can be fake love where you, you're really, it's just a form of narcissism where you want people to give you the attention right. and feed the image you have of yourself. But true love, the ability to get outside of yourself and to feel what other people are feeling, which is empathy. And empathy, which is a word I'm afraid that's overused, and I'm getting a little tired of it. I wish we could find a better word. But it's a major theme in the sublime, because the idea is the highest mental power that we humans have, the source really of our intelligence, is what they call theory of mind, that we are able to place ourselves in the bodies and the minds of other people. It What's made us the supreme social animal, right? As to be able to as, think about what someone else is thinking. Yeah, and it's not only just for, for love, it's also for fighting your opponent, et cetera, and for dealing any kind of social situation. But it's the source of all of our intelligence, right? It's the source of our science. A great scientist like an Einstein is thinking inside the very subjects he's, he's trying to get in, into, right? And that's where his metaphors and analogies often come from, because he's able to think about it, oh, this is like this. Right. Yeah. So that's the source of our power. And so high-level empathy, where you're able to think inside of other people to kind of imagine what they're going through, what their feelings are, is to me the highest passion of all, which is a form of love, and it is extremely sublime. Yeah, no, I think it's like, so instead of being, like you look at what's happening in the world, you could be angry, someone's behaving this way or doing this selfish thing. And then it's like, to me, the, extra, the stoic exercise is like, well, why are they this way? Well, it's because someone misled them. They're actually a victim of, the, although they're perpetrating a, you know, something unethical or unfair or unjust, they're a victim because someone, they're a victim of a scam or a scheme or a, a, a bad actor. And then also they are suffering for that. It's not fun to be them. Right. Um, and that, that, 
I'm lucky not to have experienced that. And that they're, they're so, so if you can experience this sort of compassion, it's almost more than empathy. It's like a compassion or understanding right. uh, for that person. Then, then you can be, you can feel love towards them instead of anger or rage or despair about like why are people that way? But can you do that with the anti-vaxxers? It's hard. <laughs> on a good on a on a good day, I can. Uh, I was wondering if you're maybe reaching your limits of that there. Well, I mean, I'm. I, it's it's a tricky thing, right? Because it is. You can understand where they're coming from, just in the same way that you could understand, you know, let's say addiction is a disease, and that this person, this being addicted to this or that has caused so much pain and suffering for that person, and it's part of some wound that they had as a child, and it's not fun to be them, and that life would be better for them if they were clean, but, you know, they still broke into your house and stole a family heirloom to, to sell to buy drugs, or they still got high and crashed their car and they killed someone. So I think mm. we're really struggling with that particularly is you can have em empathy and understanding for the person, but that doesn't negate the fact that the thing they're doing has real consequences Definitely. for other people. Definitely. But, but if you want to, um, if you want to win this war, when let's call it a war against these, this, this type of thinking, you have to, you can't just like get angry and close the door on them and just say, go, go away. You know, you're just, you're evil, you're bad. We have to live with them, right? They're in our midst every yep. day. And so if our politicians and people in charge were smart, which they're not, they would have that mentality. They would have the idea that you can't just alienate people and antagonize them and push them further into their corner. But to go to say like the civil rights movement, obviously Martin Luther King talks a lot about justice and loving the enemy. And even though they hurt him and, you know, there's a famous moment where Martin Luther King's on stage and a man just comes in, a Nazi, just starts punching him in the face. Right, right. And Martin Luther King has this almost superhuman discipline. Right. He not only, he, it, people said he dropped his hands. Like he didn't you, even go like this. Are you this in temperance? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like to me, that's the heroic level of temperance. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. just, oh, someone called you a bad name and you didn't react. Like yeah. he he conquered it to the level where he didn't go like this. Yeah, I know, like it's this. amazing, it's amazing. Um, he talked about all that, and yet he also understood that segregation could only be destroyed through the force of law. But how do you get the force of law? I mean- You can't those, force the, the force of law. I mean, those, those little girls and boys didn't go to school at Little Rock High School without the 101st Airborne. Yeah, but how did you get the 101st Airborne? How did you get Kennedy or Johnson to do that? How did you move public opinion to get to that point? No, I'm just you saying it's you both. Can't, it's you both. can't compel people in any way. So even to get Congress or the president to mandate vaccinations like they've done in other countries, you're going to get immense pushback, right? Right. So how are you going to deal with that? Well, I think Martin Luther King said somewhere, I'm paraphrasing, it was like, you know, you can't make my neighbor like me, but you can prevent him from killing me. Yeah. Like, so, so it's both. It needed sort of the force of law as well as a sort of a public opinion campaign. And we need, we need both and we kind of have neither. Yeah, yeah. Um, Seneca has this thing that it's really popular when we post it on Daily Stoic but I still struggle with what it means. He says, we suffer more in imagination than reality. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I think he's saying, and I was talking to a friend who's sort of dreading this thing that's going to happen. He's worried about this negative news article that's going to come out. And I was talking to him about it, and I was saying, look, like it's going to happen, and it's going to either be really negative or not that negative, but you're, you're borrowing the suffering in advance. You're, you're, you're feeling crappy about it before it's happened. It's like... It's like if they told you, Robert, you're going to have to spend 10 years in prison, but you have six months to get your affairs in order. Those six months of your life should not be miserable, even though the 10 years probably aren't going to be fun, because then you're actually serving a 10 and a half year sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Seneca's point is even a lot of the things we dread don't even happen. So it's even worse. We dread it in advance and then it doesn't happen. Yeah. So what don't you understand? I'm just curious, what does that quote mean to you? Well, it ref- refer- it makes me think of of my meditation again. I hope I'm not sounding like a one-trick pony here. But um, so when I'm meditating, I become extremely aware that thinking is almost a form of a disease. I get that idea constantly as I'm as I'm meditating. Like thoughts are coming up, and they're negative thoughts. of the thoughts that come up uncontrollably are about anxiety. They're about people who've done things to you that you don't like. It's about problems with people, etc. So many of the thoughts are negative, and you're anticipating, as you say, negative things happening to you. And it's almost like thinking is the problem itself because it divorces you from the moment. Right. So I often have the idea as I'm meditating there's a world out there that has nothing to do with me that's completely indifferent to Robert Greene. The birds could care less about my fate. The trees don't know anything about my existence. The sky doesn't care at all about me, right? Okay, that's the reality. That's the world. But my thinking creates this thing as if I'm the most important thing in the universe, that everything that happens is is going to happen to me and is going to be bad, etc. So to be able to see that thinking traps you so many times into patterns that you've been programmed to respond to situations a lot of times by anxiety, you know, like thoughts pop up about, I've got to do this phone call or, Oh, I forgot to email that person or damn it. That this, this interview is coming up and I don't want to do it or blah, 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 blah. So much of the thoughts are, are anxieties that you're anticipating right. what's going to happen. Right. If you can just control that, if you could just see that, that that is the source of your problem and that the world is indifferent to you and that the circumstances are totally neutral and that newspaper article that comes out, you can't control it. And maybe the bad stuff will actually in the end rebound to your favor or it'll make you tougher. It'll make you realize certain things. If you can just see them as facts as opposed to like these horrible things inside your head, these phantasmos, whatever the Latin word is, you know, then you've got the power. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. 
Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths that you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist, and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash stoic code SPACE80. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoke and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, and, and the irony, and I think this is very common, so I'm not singling this person out, but like, so he's dreading the thing. He's worried about it. What's, what's going to mean? What's going to happen? Blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, so have you made, have you written your response? You know, we've talked about it like a dozen times, but the one thing he controls would be like, what's he going? I was like, you should have written. This is your response. If they say this, this is your response. If they say this, this is your response. If you say this, this is how you've already prepared all the people in your life that this thing might be happening. But of course, none of that was done because it was almost, even though it was, he's making himself miserable, mm. it was more pleasure, it was more yeah, yeah, yeah. rewarding to just sit and stew, stew. and worry yeah. than to, like the Stoics say, look, you don't control what's, in the, what's gonna happen, but you control how you respond to what happens, mm. and you also can control how you prepare for what happens. But we don't do that. Well, you know who one of the great Stoics of the 20th century was? No. Alfred Hitchcock. He had a plan for everything? So. Directing a film, if, if you've known other people who've done it, is an extremely stressful job. It's like directing an army into a campaign because problems are arising that you cannot anticipate. There's all this pressure. There's all this money. You've got insane egos of actors, producers, etc. And so it's like it's a constant adrenaline rush going through. You can't control your emotions. So Hitchcock, people would look at him on the set and he'd be falling asleep in the director's chair. He'd look like Buddha. His eyes were closed. Why? Because he prepared for everything. He anticipated everything that was going to happen, right? And so by the time the film came, he was completely bored because he knew he, he was able to control every aspect of the production. So I know, for instance, if I have to go on live television, which is almost like having a sword fight with Musashi, right? Mm-hmm. For 10 minutes, Everyone around the world is seeing you live. 
If you say something stupid or you blank out, you're humiliated. Or if you're boring, they can they'll cut the interview short. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. It's it's the worst thing. It's the worst. I don't know if you can agree with me, but it's one of the worst things ever. So what I've learned is I'm going to prepare the hell out of it. I'm going to have everything nailed down, right? And then sometimes they don't ask you the questions you anticipated. It goes off in other directions. But when you enter that green room or where you're ready to, to be interviewed, you have a calmness because you prepared. You know what your answers are going to be. You're able to, you're not sitting there in the moment trying to figure things out. So I think that's kind of similar to what you're saying there. I had a, I heard a thing about Bill Walsh, the football coach. He would he would script his first fifteen yeah, plays of the game. For that. So it was irrelevant what was happening in the world because he had his plan. Now that might have made him a little unflexible in some ways, but it also meant that if something went wrong, he wasn't scrambling, running right. around like with a. It wasn't looking for order and direction because like there was a plan and all he had to do was stick to the plan. Right. And those 15 plays were also geared towards the opponent. They weren't sure. just random plays that he right. devised, you know? Right. No. And it's about so much of life. I think even like the interview you're talking about, it's about settling into a rhythm. It's about you go into it with nerves that are not beneficial. So it's really about just, you have the initial rush. How do you prevent the crash after the rush? How do you just get into the groove that you need to do your thing? The other thing I, t I advise people, a lot of it, stressful situation or job interviews. And the best defense is to be so thoroughly prepared. You've studied that, that company like, like it's the back of your hand. You know the person who's interviewing. You've done massive amounts of research. You've just done all the detail work. And you've prepared what more or less you're going to say. Then you go in. It's a completely different mindset than if you're just going to like wing it. But I think some people think the anticipation thing can lead to anxiety or worry. But there's a Napoleon quote I like where he says, the general should ask themselves three times a day, what would I do if the enemy appears here, here, here? Yeah. I don't think he wanted the generals to be anxious. He just wanted them to be aware, like to have a plan. Well, preparation, that's why Hitchcock could fall asleep. When you're prepared, you're calm, right? Yeah. So when you've done your work, you know, and you get on the golf course or you get in the boxing ring or you get on the interview stage, yeah, you're going to be nervous. And yeah, you're going to have adrenaline because I've found if you don't have adrenaline, you're not focused enough. You need a little bit of nervous energy. Sure. But there's a difference between being nervous energy and it forecloses your ability to think in the moment. But when you're prepared, you're able to be calmer. And then if people surprise you with a question, you're not suddenly flustered. Because you entered with it with a much higher degree of calmness than when if you try to just completely fling it. I don't know if you've had that experience. No, I think you need a little bit of that. It's like, it's just a, a heightened state of awareness. It's not sustainable. Like you yeah. can't do it every day of your life, but you need to go into an extra, enter an extra sphere or plane to mm -hmm. do your, your best work, I feel yeah. like. Um. Seneca talks about, he has this Latin expression, which I won't say because I'll probably butcher it, but he says like the whole world is a temple of the gods. And I think one of the most, you know, people think of Marcus Aurelius as this sort of dour, depressive, like really? guy, but like think of my favorite parts of meditations are his like observations about nature. Yeah. He talks about like weight, ben, uh, wheat bending low under its own weight. Yeah. He talks about the flecks of foam on a boar's mouth. He talks about olives falling from the tree yeah, yeah, yeah. it's clear that he would walk he was a he would go outside yes but he was also aware 
of what's happening outside. He was connected and present, like Da Vinci, the way he would fall in love with the way mm-hmm. a bird flew, mm-hmm. or even like what a body looked like when you mm-hmm. cut it open. Mm-hmm. To me, that's part of the sublime stuff too, it, it actual understanding and awe. Like we use that word awesome, but we don't really think about what it means, but just yeah. awe seems so important. I wonder what the etymology of awe is. I, I should look that up. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the other thing that that's similar to, to, and it's from Marcus Aurelius that's related, is um, look at things as they are. So you're drinking wine, think of the grapes being crushed. You're having olive oil, think of the olives being crushed. I don't remember what the other examples were. It's a little, this is, I think, one of the reasons people think it's kind of depressing. Is like, this is a dead pig. This is a dead bird. Well, yeah, but that's what the food that you're eating, you know? Sure. Yeah, and so... You know, that's a lot of the sublime because you're walking around in your world and you're kind of sleepwalking. Yeah. You're not paying attention to things and you're not really seeing things as they are. So you're you're drinking your orange juice from some some plastic bottle. You're not aware of the oranges or the process or what people went through. I mean, I know that if you were, that might not be that exciting. So that's maybe not the best example. But being aware of where things come from, of what they are, of what their true nature is, you know, that's sort of what children, how the children think, because they're constantly curious. They just don't assume that something just came into the world the way it is. They want to know how and they want to know why. So you live in a world where you're surrounded by things that exist that, that kind of you don't really know what, where they come from or what what's, makes them so interesting. And you're not paying attention to it. So some people have this idea of the sublime, like you have to do these incredible things. It has to be some amazing experience. You have to climb Mount Everest to, to have that rush and just look down on the world. And, or you have to be in a, in a space, you know, you have to be with Jeff Bezos on Blue Origin. Sure. You know, it's, it's, it's pathetic. It's stupid. It's silly. The sublime is like around you. It's around just looking at your skin, realizing your own body, your own physiology. It's in everything around you is weird and sublime if you look at it a certain way. I think about that with, so it's like, it's easy to look at the Grand Canyon and be awestruck. Yeah. It's easy to, uh, yeah, like look at something amazing and be awestruck. But the point is, can you find that in the ordinary or even in the ugly, right? Can you see the the steam coming out of a sewer in New York City or like cat footprints on a car? I just I just wrote about that in the pagan chapter because in the Aztec cosmology they have a word that I'm going to butcher, but it was called Tlazo Keotl, and it meant um, literally means sacred excrement, and it means that there was a god of excrement and filth, and even the filth is beautiful and sacred, and so I write about how you can look at things that are kind of decaying or that smell kind of funky. And you can find that kind of exciting and interesting in its own way. The decay has a certain kind of poignancy to it, right? Some and some decaying things almost have a sweet smell to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, I forget what we were talking about. Just well, no, I, I relate that to, to gratitude, right? So people go, "It's important to be grateful." So then, like on Thanksgiving, they're like, "I'm grateful for my family. I'm yeah, grateful yeah. for my health." I'm well, grateful, I remember. I remember. Right, and then. And that is important, but I also think gratitude as a practice should be like, how do you find a way to be grateful 
for the shit that you don't like, that you didn't want to happen, right? Again, it's easy to be grateful that you're rich or that you're like free or that you're this or that, but can you be grateful for like your broken leg or can you be grateful for that terrible relationship that you are in? Can you be grateful that all this, I was trying to think about this the other day, how can I be grateful for all the frustrate, like the frustrating state of the world. Well, what's to be grateful there? Well, it's an opportunity, right? To be not those things, right? Right, right. If I was thinking about uh, the town that I live in. If if it was perfect, and the things that I didn't like about it were not there, almost certainly I would not be able to afford to live here. Well, this town's pretty perfect. No, but you get what I mean. Yeah. Like if it, well, go, if if it. Even writing a book, if writing the book was easy, mm-hmm. either everyone would do it or there you wouldn't be paid what you're paid to do it, right? It's yeah. you you find you you realize that the the whole fact that it's hard or difficult or not perfect is what made it possible, accessible, or um potentially rewarding. Yeah, it makes me think of two things. So I was reading recently a biography of William James, the great American philosopher, psychologist. And he has this great essay, I forget which one it's called, where he went to this like perfect utopia colony in New York called Chautauqua, where everything was easy and wonderful and everybody was so polite and they were all playing games outside and it was nature, there was no conflict and it was like this paradise. And he felt after he was there for two days, he wanted to throw up. He thought it the most repulsive thing he'd ever been to. He says, when you take conflict away from a human being, you, you, it's like castrating them. You, you, you remove something essential from our nature. And he found it horrifying and nightmarish, which is kind of like what a utopia could be like. Um, the other thing is, well, you know, what about like, I, I'm not trying to be so self-centered here, but I guess I am having a stroke. You know, it's it's not fun. You know, you can't wouldn't wish it on someone. I wouldn't wish it on anyone, not even a certain someone whose name I won't mention. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you, you your active life is taken away from you and you you have to learn a patience that does never existed. It takes you five minutes to tie your shoelaces, etc. What could you be grateful for that? Well, it's true. You can. It's taught me a lot of things. It's made me very kind of humble and appreciate what I had and also um, understand what it feels like for other people to be helpless physically, to have greater degrees of empathy. It has taught me to appreciate the smaller things in life. It's, For example, I could have had a stroke that damaged the left side of my brain, in which case I wouldn't be able to write a book. So which would be worse, having the right side of my brain damaged so I can't walk or the left side of my brain where I can't write another book, I would take what sure. happened to me over the other one. So even this kind of worst thing, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me, but of course getting COVID could be theoretically a lot worse. And I have a friend who got COVID and then had a stroke. Um, so yeah, there's always worse in this world, but you know, there's, there's even good to be extracted from what, from the worst thing that happened in your life without getting Pollyannish about it because a, a lot of it's painful and frustrating, but you do have to look at it that way because you can't control it. You know, there's nothing you can do. That's one of my favorite Marcus quotes. I think it ties to what you're saying. He says, um, in meditations, Marcus says, uh, 
a fire digest. Uh, he says a strong stomach digests what it eats. A fire turns everything you throw on top of it into flame and brightness. It's a great quote. I love that quote. Yeah. What does it mean to you? It just means that you everything that happens, you consume it in a particular way, and you turn it into, you know, that that fire inside of you just consumes all circumstances into something positive. You just burn them up, and you evaporate them, and you make them part of your life, and you incorporate them. And I don't know. I might be butchering it, but uh, or I might be getting the context wrong. No, no. I think you're totally right. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers. My wife and I have both been raving about this book, Furious Hours. Whether it's kids' books, my books, thrillers, history books, the Stoics, it doesn't matter. You can find whatever you're looking for on Audible. My belief is that books are important and amazing. I'm a little bias, of course, as an author. And whatever gets them into your brain, I'm all for. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. Visit audible.com slash daily stoke or text daily stoke to 500 500. That's audible.com slash daily stoke or text daily stoke to 500 500. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. I talk about that in Growth Hacker Marketing. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash stoic. That's netsuite.com slash stoic. The, the, as I've thought about that quote more, the one thing that I've came to understand is like, if you've ever started like a campfire or something, and then you're like, it starts to get going and then you get excited and you throw too much on it, it puts the fire out, right? right? So what he, I think he's really commenting oh. on is like, how strong, how robust is that fire inside of you? Yeah. If it's just a puny little spark or a, yeah. you know, it's that one of those fires that's more smoke than heat, yeah. um, you can also, putting stuff on top of it can also dampen it out or, 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 or block it out. So it's really about, how much you have going on in here. That's the per like, that's how you hear about somebody who goes through an incredible amount of adversity. Marcus Aurelius lost, I think, seven children. Like you think about what kind, or you think about Admiral Stockdale and the Hanoi Hilton, just what kind of inner fortitude and strength and drive and inner power you would have to have for one of those things not to break you, not every single one yeah, yeah. right after another. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, so this makes me think of two things. So I'm right now writing a chapter about um, childhood sublime and kind of the main story, the icon of it is the writer Vladimir Nabokov, wrote Lolita, among many other great novels. And um, he had this kind of idyllic childhood in Russia, a wealthy fat father and really kind of this doting mother and this country estate it was kind of like here he's just his paradise and then it's 1918 or 17 and he's 18 years old and the russian revolution breaks out and his father's a marked man and they have to flee they have to leave behind all of their possessions 
They flee to Europe. They end up in Berlin. His father is assassinated by a fascist. His wife is Jewish, and they're there when Hitler comes to power. And they have to flee Germany. He has to leave behind his mother and all his siblings. For a second time? Yeah, second time. And his brother dies in a concentration camp. And he flees to New York. And here he is. He's in his 40s. And he had the most happy childhood. And yet he has no photographs, no souvenirs, no family members to share it with. He can never go back to Russia because of Stalin and the circumstances. And yet what does he do? You know, that's, that's like just horrifying. So his idea was he was going to recreate his childhood in his mind. He was going to make it come to life just by imagining it and feeling those emotions again. So that was kind of his fire. I don't know if that's sort no, of No, no, like any one of those things could be, if you're like, why is that person a drunk? It'd be like, because yeah. one of those things happened to them. Yeah. But the the people that I think are so amazing, the people who sort of keep going, like um, they just published this new edition of some of the writings of Viktor Frankl. Yeah. And it's called um, Yes to Life. Right. And the subtitle is In Spite of Everything. Well, who went through worse than Viktor Frankl? But I love that phrase, like, in spite of everything. Right. It's not, life is not Plato's Republic. It's not your idyllic childhood. It's yeah. not how you want it it's to It's Auschwitz. Be. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 in, you have to do these things we're talking about in spite of. So you think about Marcus Aurelius and what he's talking about, like how to be free of passion, full of love. You can't expect Plato's Republic, this or that. He's, he's not having a good time. Like that, even the ancient historians were like, this was this wonderful man who, who met with continual bad luck in life, but it never seemed to pierce that inner scent. Like he never became bitter. He never despaired. He never abandoned. Would have been so easy as you're burying your second child to be like, you know what? It's all bullshit. Like I quit, but he never, he never did that. Yeah, that's, that's unbelievable. It would have been interesting to um, to be inside of his mind at, at that time and to see like the struggles because you know there was a struggle. Of course, I know it wasn't like easy to do that, and that it took a process, and that it would be interesting because we only have his meditations basically. But what if we had more of that? It would be so exciting to see. You have to kind of just completely read between the lines because so little is known of his life. Well, when I read between the lines, I see him talking about. Not losing your temper, yeah, yeah, not yeah, despairing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He talks. He taught. He's clearly. He says like. Um, he talks about reaching for your child, and they're yeah. not there. Yeah. So clearly, he was struggling with all these things. But he was. Journal was where he worked it out. Yeah. But so so people have this wrong impression about stoicism, which came back to sort of something we were talking about yesterday, where they kind of accuse you sometimes of not being stoic, or it's a struggle. Yeah, sure. Even for Marcus Aurelius, it was a continual struggle. Even for Epictetus, however you pronounce it, um, it was a continual struggle. It's not like you're suddenly a Stoic. You've reached, the, you got a diploma, and now you've, you know, you're, you're con continually struggling with your human nature. And if it wasn't a struggle, would it be that admirable? Like yeah. if, it, if if you were just born that way, or if it was you read this book and then you magically become this way how impressive would that be? It's like, we love the Tom Brady's of the world or the whatever, because they, sh they shouldn't be able to do what they're doing because they yeah. were a 
six round draft pick because yeah. they're not drew Brees isn't tall enough yeah. you know spud webb isn't tall enough yeah uh tom brady's too old it's it's that they're doing it in spite of everything right that makes it impressive or admirable right so it's the resistance that kind of makes you stronger and the more so sometimes like the times that you're born in like sometimes i wish damn it why couldn't i have been born in like the 19th century or in ancient athens you know uh, uh, there's some things about the 2020 that 2021 that I just don't like, you know, I would have been so much happier, but then I have so much to resist against Yeah, that it almost is a, is almost like a form of pleasure that I have to like struggle even harder to focus on reading and reading a book. Now reading Nietzsche or reading Marcus Aurelius is triple the pleasure when you re live in a world that's so antithetical to it. Right. Not just antithetical, but like reading the Stoics during a pandemic, oh during a plague, God. you realize, oh, this is what's happening. Right. Um, I, I, um, Stefan Zweig, uh, who I know you love, yeah. wrote this amazing biography of Montaigne. Yeah, I told you about that. Yeah. yeah, and and when you read it and you go, oh, this is a guy writing. He's a refugee from Hitler, yeah. writing about a guy who's a right. refugee from, from Europe, civil war. Yeah. And then you're, I was reading it in 2016. Right, right, and, right. And you're just getting, you just sort of realize it's all, and Mark Sirius talks about this in message. It's always been this way. Yeah. People are people. Yeah. This is the rhythms of history. Uh, insane things happen. Yeah. Unjust things happen. Yeah. And it comes back to the fundamental question with, with, that Zweig says in that book and that I think he says was Montaigne's primary question, which is how do you find freedom right. despite the constraints or difficulties or chaos of the world around well, Montaigne you? Montaigne was, was a great lover of the Stoics, and uh, he had a quote of uh, Epictetus on his oh, right. uh, on the ceiling in his in his uh -huh. library. Yeah, he was amazing. He was he was so far ahead of his time in so many ways because he was appalled at the uh, treatment of of uh, in the colonization of Brazil, et cetera, of the treatment of slavery, et cetera. And he was kind of uh, saying that the cannibals were, were, more, were more ethical than the Europeans of his time, et cetera. He was amazing, people like that who were outside of their time. He loved cats. He loved cats, well, there you go. What's, that, what's wrong with you? Yeah, it's true. Um, no, that, maybe that's a good place to stop because you were describing your near-death experience yeah. earlier. And I was thinking of Montaigne's near-death experience. He falls yeah. off this horse. Yeah, yeah. By the way, his brother died. He was hit with a tennis ball. Uh, I don't remember that. His part. brother died in a tragic tennis accident, oh. which doesn't seem possible for the 1500s. Maybe they're covering it up with but, something. But, but it was. Yeah. Um, but so he's he's falls off a horse and he dies. And he as they carry him into the house, he said he could feel death dancing on the tip of his lip or life dancing on the tip of his lips realizing that it was this force inside you that can go away. Yeah. And basically all of his work comes after this yeah. near death experience. Yeah. 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 And how so how has your brush with mortality changed well, you? Well, it, it it's very true that life is like so we we so intellectualize and verbalize things, but life is a feeling inside your body. It's an energy, it's a force. How could you ever put the words that would describe what it's like? It's ineffable. You know, it's ineffable, but you know it when it's like leaving you, what mm. that feeling is like. So there was another woman who I've 
She wrote a great book about her stroke called Stroke of Insight, Jill Bolte. She became a neuroscientist. She had a much worse stroke, and she literally felt all of the life draining out of her body, inch by inch by inch, as like as death was passing through her. I had a little bit of that, and I also felt that this kind of force that is being alive is like being drained out of me. It wasn't as strong as that because my stroke wasn't as bad. But I did connect to the feeling of life and the feeling of death because I had the feeling of death in my body. As I described earlier, the sense of my bones kind of shriveling and melting and getting soft and kind of everything that makes you alive kind of leaving your body. So it makes you aware that there's a physical a physicality to being alive, to being conscious, and to that you carry your death within you. And sort of, so, you know, I'm writing a little bit now about, I'm writing about childhood. And what's interesting is children are actually very much closer to that than we are as adults. Because they were just born. They were just born. Two years ago, three years ago, they came out of the womb. They came out of the darkness. They did not exist. They did not exist. So they have a feeling of what it means to like not exist and to have that sudden burst of light and to scream and you're alive. It's kind of a mix of horror and, and something pleasurable, I suppose. I don't know. But it is true that children have a much more visceral connection to life and death as we do as adults. We lose it because as we get older, we just... Well, we take the force for granted. Completely Because we've had for it granted. for however many years you've been alive. Yeah. So that sense of like dancing on your tongue, that's brilliant. You know, that's, it's just like, it's, it's like pervading your whole body. It's a feeling that you're being alive. And consciousness itself is a weird sensation. So sometimes when I'm meditating, I almost have this idea that the world itself is conscious, that it exists outside of my brain, that everything in the world has a kind of consciousness to it. But we don't think about these things. We take it for granted that we're this one animal that's able to think that has a consciousness. So many of the things that we take for granted, it goes back to that Marcus Aurelius thing about the, the dead pig or the, or the wine that you drink. What does it actually mean to have thoughts, etc.? And so nearly dying kind of brings that stuff home to you. So, so understanding that life is a force and that you watched it almost leave, how do you protect it now that you got it back, however briefly? How do you think about that force as you go through your life day to day? Well, I'm a very aware of it. I'm very aware of the precariousness of it. You know, um, I'm very aware of the fact that it could leave me at any moment. So just the awareness is kind of uh, uh, something that makes you feel a little bit more alive. It's, you know, um, so the other thing is in, in, in writing this book on the sublime and kind of studying the history of evolution and um, how we certain things evolve, like the eye and emotions and, and, and the skeleton, etc. It makes you look at, at your own body in a completely different way. It's like this insane miracle. So life almost seems like it shouldn't be there. It's uncanny. It's absurd. It's absurd, you know? Um, and so I have a lot of kind of surreal moments where um, I almost feel like I'm taken out of my body a little bit. As I was saying earlier, it was just for a flash. 
but I was watching a squirrel climb up the telephone pole and I was kind of feeling what it was like to be a squirrel. I do that often in my backyard. I watch squirrels. I'm kind of fascinated by them. And I think- They seem like they're having a good time. Oh, they seem like they're in paradise, continue paradise. There are trees everywhere. There are nuts everywhere. There are fruit plants in my backyard that they're decimating. The thing I heard about squirrels is they they lose like 40 or 50% of the nuts that they hide. But <laughs> yeah. but the accident, but but in so doing, create the forest that we then right? love, right? Oh. So it's like the accidental absurdity of their, like the byproduct of their stupidity is, could be that tree. Well, right I would, hey, wait a minute. I wouldn't call squirrels stupid because they have this, they've shown they have incredible memory. But clearly not that great if they lose 50% of the nuts that they have. Now it's going up to 50%. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that they, they, they have these certain kind of things in their brain where they can remember exactly where they buried that nut in the pot in your backyard, but I could be wrong. You get my, but, but yeah. yes, I agree. Yeah. They seem like they're having a good time. They're always having a good time, yeah. So sometimes I just have flashes of how weird life is. They're only like for a second or two, but they're, they're. That's how kids think too, I think. Yeah. They just, they love, they love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully you'll have many, many more of them. Kids? No, of those moments, <laughs> of those moments. If, if life yeah. is fleeting, I think yeah. that's also one reason to soak in whatever the moment is, even if it's banal or strange or, you know, we want to see the Grand Canyon, to go what we're talking about, but yeah. then we ignore the slightly harder beauty of the squirrel, which is a lot more prevalent and accessible or, at any or moment. Or just take five minutes to watch a spider on a web. I did that in my backyard the other day. Oh, man, it was, it's like better than any movie you could watch streaming on Netflix. To sit there and watch a spider on a web it's created, just waiting there as the wind kind of, and how it feels every single vibration. I mean, it's just everywhere around you, little weird things like that. You know, I hope I don't sound like a, like Pollyannish or like some no, of you writes for Reader's Digest or something. I don't think any, anyone <laughs> has ever accused Robert Greene of sounding Pollyannish. <laughs> okay. No, right. this is amazing. Thank right. you, Robert. Right. Thank you very much, Ryan. Hey, it's Ryan. Thank you for listening to the Daily Stoic Podcast. I just wanted to say we so appreciate it. We love serving you. It's amazing to us that over 30 million people have downloaded these episodes in the couple years we've been doing it. It's an honor. Please spread the word, tell people about it. And this isn't to sell anything. I just wanted to say thank you. about the $100 wedding dress that just saved Abercrombie? Or the tech acquisition that was just like Game of Thrones? Or the one financial equation that can solve climate change? Then check out our daily podcast, The Best One Yet, or as we call it, T-Boy. This is Nick. This is Jack. And we pick the three most interesting business news stories every day for the perfect mix. 20 minutes each morning, you're going to feel brighter. We call it pop biz, don't we, Jack? Where pop culture meets business news. So whether you want to kick off a conversation with your buddies or you're going for that promotion at work or you just want to know the trends before your friends, feel brighter by starting your morning with us every weekday. Listen to the best one yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your pods. You can listen to the best one yet ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts.
With shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, and many more, Wondery means business. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, <laughs> I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.